Section 16 of Now It Can Be Told by Philip Gibbs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 6. Psychology on the Somme. Chapters 1 to 8. Chapter 1. All that had gone before was but a preparation for what now was to come. Until July 1 of 1916, the British armies were only getting ready for the big battles which were being planned for them by something greater than generalship, by the fate which decides the doom of men. The first battles by the old contemptibles, down from Mons and up by Ypres, were defensive actions of rear guards holding the enemy back by a thin wall of living flesh, while behind the new armies of our race were being raised. The battles of Festubert, Nouveau-Chapelle, Luce, and all minor attacks which led to little salience were but experimental adventures in the science of slaughter, badly bungled by our laboratories. They had no meaning apart from providing those mistakes by which men learn, ghastly mistakes, burning more than the fingers of life's children. They were only diversions of impatience in the monotonous routine of trench warfare, by which our men strengthened the mud walls of their school of courage, so that the new boys, already coming out, might learn their lessons without more grievous interruption than came from the daily visits of the intruder to whom the fees were paid. In those two years it was France which fought the greatest battles, flinging her sons against the enemy's ramparts in desperate, vain attempts to breach them. At Verdun, in the months that followed the first month of sixteen, it was France which sustained the full weight of the German offensive on the Western Front, and broke its human waves, until they were spent in a sea of blood, above which the French poilus, the hairy ones, stood panting and haggard on their death-strewn rocks. The Germans had failed to deal a fatal blow at the heart of France. France held her head up still, bleeding from many wounds, but defiant still and the German high command, aghast at their own losses, 600,000 casualties, already conscious, icily, of a dwindling manpower which one day would be cut off at its source, rearranged their order of battle and shifted the balance of their weight eastward to smash Russia. Somehow or other they must smash a way out by sledgehammer blows, left and right, west and east, from that ring of nations which girdled them. On the west, they would stand now on the defensive, fairly sure of their strength, but well aware that it would be tried to the utmost by that enemy which, at the back of their brains, at the back of the narrow brains of those bald-headed vultures on the German general staff, they most feared, as their future peril, England. They had been fools to let the British armies grow up and wax so strong. It was the folly of madness by which they had flung that gauntlet down to the souls of proud peoples arrayed against them. Our armies were now strong and trained and ready. We had about 600,000 bayonet men in France and Flanders and in England, immense reserves to fill up the gaps that would be made in their ranks before the summer foliage turned to russet tints. Our power in artillery had grown amazingly since the beginning of the year. Every month I had seen many new batteries arrive, with clean harness and yellow straps, and young gunners who were quick to get their targets. We were strong in heavies, 12-inchers, 9.2s, 8-inchers, 4.2s, mostly howitzers, 
with the long-muzzled sixty-pounders terrible in their long range and destructiveness. Our aircraft had grown fast, squadron upon squadron, and our aviators had been trained in the school of General Trenchard, who sent them out over the German lines to learn how to fight, and how to scout, and how to die like little gentlemen. For a time our flying men had gone out on old-fashioned buses, primitive machines which were an easy prey to the fast-flying folkers, who waited for them behind a screen of cloud, and then stooped on them like hawks sure of their prey. But to the aerodrome near Saint-Omer came later models, out of date a few weeks after their delivery, replaced by still more powerful types, more perfectly equipped for fighting. Our knights-errant of the air were challenging the German champions on equal terms, and beating them back from the lines unless they flew in clusters. There were times when our flying men gained an absolute supremacy by greater daring. There was nothing they did not dare, and by equal skill. As a caution, not wasting their strength in unequal contests. It was sound policy, and enabled them to come back again in force and hold the field for a time by powerful concentrations. But in the battles of the Somme our airmen, at a heavy cost of life, kept the enemy down a while and blinded his eyes. The planning of new aerodromes between Albert and Amiens, the long trail down the roads of lorries packed with wings and the furniture of aircraft factories, gave the hint to those who had eyes to see that in this direction a merry hell was being prepared. There were plain signs of massacre at hand all the way from the coast to the lines. At Etaple and other places near Bologna, hospital huts and tents were growing like mushrooms in the night. From casualty clearing stations near the front, the wounded, the human wreckage of routine warfare, were being evacuated in a hurry to the base and from the base to England. They were to be cleared out of the way so that all the wards might be empty for a new population of broken men, in enormous numbers. I went down to see this clearance, this tidying up. There was a sinister suggestion in the solitude that was being made for a multitude that was coming. We shall be very busy, said the doctors. We must get all the rest we can now, said the nurses. In a little while every bed will be filled, said the matrons. Outside one hut, with the sun on their faces, were four wounded Germans, Württembergers and Bavarians, too ill to move just then. Each of them had lost a leg under the surgeon's knife. They were eating strawberries and seemed at peace. I spoke to one of them. Wie befinden Sie sich? Ganz wohl. Wir sind zufrieden mit unserer Behandlung. I passed through the shell-shock wards and a yard where the shell-shocks sat about dumb or making queer foolish noises or staring with a look of animal fear in their eyes from a padded room came a sound of singing some idiot of war was singing between bursts of laughter it all seemed so funny to him that war so mad we are clearing them out said the medical officer there will be many more soon how soon that was the question nobody could answer it was the only secret and even that was known in London, where little ladies in society were naming the date, in confidence, to men who were directly concerned with it, having, as they knew, only a few more weeks or days of certain life. But I believe there were not many officers who would have surrendered deliberately, all share in the great push, in spite of all the horror which these young officers knew it would involve. They had to be in it, 
and could not endure the thought that all their friends and all their men should be there while they were out of it. A decent excuse for the safer side of it, yes. A staff job, the intelligence branch, any post behind the actual shambles, and thank God for the luck, but not an absolute shirk. Tents were being pitched in many camps of the Somme, rows and rows of bell tents and pavilions stained to a reddish-brown. Small cities of them were growing up on the right of the road between Amiens and Albert, at Derincourt and Daur and Vosucorbi. I thought they might be for troops in reserve until I saw large flags hoisted to tall staffs, and men of the RAMC busy painting signs on large sheets stretched out on the grass. It was always the same sign, the sign of the cross that was red. There was a vast traffic of lorries on the roads, and trains were traveling on light railways day and night to railroads just beyond shell range. What was all the weight they carried? No need to ask. The dumps were being filled, piled up with row upon row of shells, covered by tarpaulin or brushwood, when they were all stacked. Enormous shells, some of them, like gigantic pigs without legs. Those were for the 15-inchers, or the 9.2s. There was enough high-explosive force littered along those roads above the Somme to blow cities off the map. "'It does one good to see,' said a cheery fellow. "'The people at home have been putting their backs into it. Thousands of girls have been packing those things. Well done, munitions!' I could take no joy in the sight, only a grim kind of satisfaction that at least when our men attacked they would have a power of artillery behind them. It might help them to smash through to a finish, if that were the only way to end this long-drawn suicide of nations. My friend was shocked when I said, Curse all munitions. Chapter 2 The British armies as a whole were not gloomy at the approach of that new phase of war which they called the Great Push, as though it were to be a glorified football match. It is difficult, perhaps impossible, to know the thoughts of vast masses of men moved by some sensational adventure. But a man would be a liar if he pretended that British troops went forward to the great attack with hangdog looks or any visible sign of fear in their souls. I think most of them were uplifted by the belief that the old days of trench warfare were over forever, and that they would break the enemy's lines by means of that enormous gunpowder behind them, and get him on the run. There would be movement, excitement, triumphant victories, and then the end of the war. In spite of all risks, it would be enormously better than the routine of the trenches. They would be getting on with the job instead of standing still and being shot at by invisible earthmen. If we once get the Germans in the open, we shall go straight through them. That was the opinion of many young officers at that time, and for once they agreed with their generals. It seemed to be a question of getting them in the open and I confess that when I studied the trench maps and saw the enemy's defensive earthworks thirty miles deep in one vast maze of trenches and redoubts and barbed wire and tunnels, I was appalled at the task which lay before our men. They did not know what they were being asked to do. They had not seen, then, those awful maps. We were at the height and glory of our strength. Out of England had come the flower of our youth and out of Scotland and Wales and Canada and Australia and New Zealand, even out of Ireland, with the 16th Division of the South and West and the 36th Ulster. The new armies, 
were made up of all the volunteers who had answered the call to the colors not waiting for the conscription by class which followed later they were the ardent ones the young men from office factory shop and field university and public school the best of our intelligence were there the noblest of our manhood the strength of our heart the beauty of our soul in those battalions which soon were to be flung into explosive fires chapter three in the month of may a new type of manhood was filling the old roads behind the front i saw them first in the little old town of st paul where always there was a coming and a going of french and english soldiers it was market day and the grand place not very grand was crowded with booths and old ladies in black and young girls with checkered aprons over their black frocks and pigs and clucking fowls suddenly the people scattered and there was a rumble and a rattle of wheels as a long line of transport wagons came through the square by jove australians there was no mistaking them their slouch hats told one at a glance but without them i should have known they had a distinctive type of their own which marked them out from all the other soldiers of ours along those roads of war they were hatchet-faced fellows who came riding through the little old market town british unmistakably yet not english not irish nor scottish nor canadian they looked hard with the hardness of a boyhood and a breeding away from cities or at least away from the softer training of our way of life they had merry eyes especially for the girls round the stalls but resolute clean-cut mouths and they rode their horses with an easy grace in the saddle as though born to riding and they drove their wagons with a recklessness along the little booths that was justified by half an inch between an iron axle and an old woman's table of colored ribbons those clean-shaven sun-tanned dust-covered men who had come out of the hell of the dardanelles and the burning drought of egyptian sands looked wonderfully fresh in france youth keen as steel with a flash in the eyes with an utter carelessness of any peril ahead came riding down the street they were glad to be there everything was new and good to them though so old and stale to many of us and after their adventures in the east they found it splendid to be in a civilized country with water in the sky and in the fields with green trees about them and flowers in the grass and white people who were friendly when they came up in the train from marseilles they were all at the windows drinking in the look of the french landscape and one of their officers told me that again and again he heard the same words spoken by those lads of his it's a good country to fight for it's like being home again at first they felt chilly in france for the weather had been bad for them during the first weeks in april when the wind had blown cold and rain clouds had broken into sharp squalls talking to the men i saw them shiver a little and heard their teeth chatter but they said they liked a moist climate with a bite in the wind after all the blaze and glare of the egyptian sun one of their pleasures in being there was the opportunity of buying sweets they can't have had too much of them said one of the officers and the idea that those hard fellows whose homeric fighting qualities had been proved should be enthusiastic for lollipops seemed to me an amusing touch of character for tough as they were and keen as they were those australian soldiers were but grown-up children with a wonderful simplicity of youth and the gift of laughter i saw them laughing when for the first time they tried on gas masks which none of us ever left behind when we went near the fighting line that horror of war on the western front was new to them 
Poison gas was not one of the weapons used by the Turks, and the gas mask seemed a joke to the groups of Australians trying on the headgear in the fields and changing themselves into obscene specters. But one man watching them gave a shudder and said, It's a pity such splendid boys should have to risk this foul way of death. They did not hear his words, and we heard their laughter again. On the first day of their arrival, I stood in a courtyard with a young officer, whose gray eyes had a fine, clear light, which showed the spirit of the man, and as we talked he pointed out some of the boys who passed in and out of an old barn. One of them had done fine work on the peninsula, contemptuous of all risks. Another had gone out under heavy fire to bring in a wounded friend. Oh, they are great lads, said the captain in the company, but now they want to get at the Germans and finish the job quickly. Give them a fair chance and they'll go far. They went far, from that time to the end, and fought with a simple, terrible courage. They had none of the discipline imposed upon our men by regular traditions. They were gypsy fellows, with none but the gypsy law in their hearts, intolerant of restraint, with no respect for rank or caste unless it carried strength with it, difficult to handle behind the lines, quick-tempered, foul-mouthed, primitive men, but lovable, human, generous souls, when their bayonets were not red with blood. Their discipline in battle was the best. They wanted to get to a place ahead. They would fight the devils of hell to get there. The New Zealanders followed them with rosy cheeks like English boys of Kent, and more gentle manners than the other Anzacs, and the same courage. They went far, too, and set the pace a while in the last lap, but that, in the summer of sixteen, was far away. In those last days of June, before the big battles began, the countryside of the Somme Valley was filled with splendor. The mustard seed had spread a yellow carpet in many meadows, so that they were fields of the cloth of gold, and clumps of red clover grew like flowers of blood. The hedges about the villages of Picardy were white with elderflower and drenched with scent. It was haymaking time, and French women and children were tossing the hay on wooden pitchforks during hot days which came between heavy rains. Our men were marching through that beauty, and were conscious of it, I think, and glad of life. CHAPTER Four. Bologna was a port through which all our youth passed between England and the long straight road which led to no man's land. The seven-day leave men were coming back by every tide, and all other leave was cancelled. New drafts were pouring through the port by tens of thousands, all manner of men of all our breed marching in long columns from the quayside where they had orders yelled at them through megaphones by apms rtos amlos and other blue-tabbed officers who dealt with them as cattle for the slaughterhouses i watched them landing from the transports which came in so densely crowded with the human freight that the men were wedged together on the decks like herrings in barrels they crossed from one boat to another to reach the gangways and one by one, interminably as it seemed, with rifle gripped and pack hunched, and steel hat clattering like a tinker's kettle, came down the inclined plank and lurched ashore. They were English lads from every country, Scots, Irish, Welsh, of every regiment, Australians, New Zealanders, South Africans, Canadians, West Indian Negroes of the garrison artillery, Sikhs, Pathans, and Dogras from the Indian cavalry. Some of them had been sick, and there was a greenish pallor on their faces. Most of them were deeply tanned. 
many of them stepped on the quayside of france for the first time after months of training and i could tell those sometimes by the furtive look they gave at the crowded scene about them and by a sudden glint in their eyes a faint reflection of the emotion that was in them because this was another stage on their adventure of war and the drawbridge was down at last between them and the enemy that was all just that look and lips tightened now grimly and the pack hunched higher then they fell in by number and marched away with red caps to guard them across the bridge into the town of bologna and beyond to the great camp near Etap, and near the hospital so that the german aircraft had a good argument for smashing red cross huts where some of them would wait until somebody said you're wanted they were wanted in droves as soon as the fighting began on the first day of july the bun shops in bologna were filled with nurses vad's all kinds of girls in uniforms which glinted with shoulder straps and buttons they ate large quantities of buns at odd hours of mornings and afternoons flying men and officers of all kinds waiting for trains crowded the folkestone hotel and restaurants where they spent two hours over luncheon and three hours over dinner drinking red wine talking shop the shop of trench mortar units machine gun sections cavalry squadrons air fighting gas schools and anti-gas schools regular inhabitants of bologna officers at the base passed to inner rooms with french ladies of dangerous appearance and the transients envied them and said those fellows have all the luck what's their secret how do they arrange these cushy jobs from open windows came the music of gramophones through the half-drawn curtains there were glimpses of khaki tunics and sam brown belts in juxtaposition with silk blouses and coiled hair and white arms opposite the folkestone there was a park of ambulances driven by scottish women who were always on the move from one part of the town to the other motor-cars came hooting with staff officers all aglow in red tabs and armbands thirsty for little cocktails after a dusty drive everywhere in the streets and on the esplanade there was incessant saluting the arms of men were never still it was like the st vitus disease tommies and jocks saluted every subaltern with an automatic gesture of convulsive energy every subaltern acknowledged these movements and in turn saluted a multitude of majors colonels and generals the thing became farcical a monstrous absurdity of human relationship yet pleasing to the vanity of men lifted up above the lowest caste it seemed to me an intensification of the snob instinct in the soul of men only the australians stood out against it and went by all officers except their own with a careless slouch and a look of to hell with all that hand-wagging seated on high stools in the folkestone our young officers clinked their cocktails and then whispered together when's it coming in a few days i'm for gomcourt sector do you think we shall get through not a doubt of it the cavalry amassing for a great drive as soon as we make the gap they'll ride into the blue by god there'll be some slaughter i think the old bosch will crack this time well cheerio there was a sense of enormous drama at hand and the excitement of it in boys hearts drugged all doubt and fears it was only the older men and the introspective who suffered from the torture of apprehension even timid fellows in the ranks were i imagine strengthened and exalted by the communal courage of their company or battalion for courage as well as fear is infectious and the psychology of the crowd uplifts the individual 
to immense heights of daring when alone he would be terror-stricken public school spirit of pride in name and tradition was in each battalion of the new army extended later to the division which became the unit of esprit de corps they must not let the battalion down they would do their damnedest to get farther than any other crowd to bag more prisoners to gain more kudos there was rivalry even among the platoons and the companies a company would show b company the way to go their sergeant major was a great fellow their platoon commanders were fine kids with anything like a chance in that spirit as far as i an outsider could see and hear did our battalions of boys march forward to the great push whistling singing jesting until their lips were dry and their throats parched in the dust and even the merriest jesters of all were silent under the weight of their packs and rifles so they moved up day by day through the beauty of that june in france thousands of men hundreds of thousands to the edge of the battlefields of the somme where the enemy was entrenched in fortress positions and where already before the last days of june gunfire was flaming over a vast sweep of country chapter five on the first of july nineteen sixteen began those prodigious battles which only lulled down at times during two and a half years more when our british armies fought with desperate sacrificial valor beyond all previous reckoning when the flower of our youth was cast into that furnace month after month recklessly with prodigal spendthrift haste when those boys were mown down in swaths by machine-guns blown to bits by shell-fire gassed in thousands until all that country became a graveyard when they went forward to new assaults or fell back in rearguard actions with a certain knowledge that they had in their first attack no more than one chance in five of escape next time one chance in four then one chance in three one chance in two and after that no chance at all on the line of averages as worked out by their experience of luck more boys came out to take their places and more and more conscripts following volunteers younger brothers following elder brothers never did they revolt from the orders that came to them never a battalion broke into mutiny against inevitable martyrdom they were obedient to the command above them their discipline did not break however profound was the despair of the individual and it was i know deep as the wells of human tragedy in many hearts the mast moved as it was directed backward or forward this way and that from one shambles to another in mud and in blood with the same massed valor as that which uplifted them before that first day of july with an intensified pride in the fame of their divisions with a more eager desire for public knowledge of their deeds with a loathing of war's misery with a sense of its supreme folly yet with a refusal in their souls to acknowledge defeat or to stop the sight of victory in each battle there were officers and men who risked death deliberately and in a kind of ecstasy did acts of superhuman courage and because of the number of these feats the record of them is monotonous dull familiar the mass followed their lead and even poor coward hearts of whom there were many as in all armies had courage enough as a rule to get as far as the center of the fury before their knees gave way or they dropped dead each wave of boyhood that came out from england brought a new mass of physical and spiritual valor 
as great as that which was spent, and in the end it was an irresistible tide which broke down the last barriers, and swept through in a rush of victory, which we gained at the cost of nearly a million dead, and a huge sum of living agony, and all our wealth, and a spiritual bankruptcy worse than material loss, so that now England is for the time sick to death and drained of her old pride and power. CHAPTER Six. I remember, as though it were yesterday in vividness and a hundred years ago in time, the bombardment which preceded the battles of the Somme. With a group of officers I stood on the high ground above Albert, looking over to Gomcourt and Thiepval and La Boiselle, on the left side of the German salient, and then, by crossing the road, to Fricourt, Mametz, and Montauban, on the southern side. From Albert westward, past Thiepval Wood, ran the little river of the Ancre, and on the German side the ground rose steeply to Unze Hill by La Boiselle, and to Thiepval Chapteau above the wood. It was a formidable defensive position, one fortress girdled by line after line of trenches, and earthwork redoubts, and deep tunnels, and dugouts in which German troops could live below ground until the moment of attack. The length of our front of assault was about twenty miles round the side of the salient to the village of Bray on the Somme, where the French joined us and continued the battle. From where we stood we could see a wide panorama of the German positions, and beyond, now and then, when the smoke of shell-fire drifted, I caught glimpses of green fields and flower-patches beyond the trench lines, and church spires beyond the range of guns rising above clumps of trees and summer foliage. Immediately below in the foreground was the village of Albert, not much ruined then, with its red brick church and tower, from which there hung, head downward, the golden virgin with her babe outstretched as though as a peace-offering over all this strife. That leaning statue, which I had often passed on the way to the trenches, was now revealed brightly with a golden glamour as sheets of flame burst through a heavy veil of smoke over the valley. In a field close by, some troops were being ticketed with yellow labels fastened to their backs. It was to distinguish them so that the artillery observers might know them from the enemy when their turn came to go into the battleground. Something in the sight of those yellow tickets made me feel sick. Away behind, a French farmer was cutting his grass with a long scythe in steady sweeping strokes. Only now and then did he stand to look over at the most frightful picture of battle ever seen until then by human eyes. I wondered, and wonder still, what thoughts were passing through that old brain to keep him at his work, quietly, steadily, on the edge of hell. For there, quite close and clear, was hell, of man's making, produced by chemists and scientists, after centuries in search of knowledge. There were the fires of hate produced out of the passion of humanity after a thousand years of Christendom and of progress in the arts and beauty. There was the devil-worship of our poor, damned human race, where the most civilized nations of the world were on each side of the bonfires. It was worth watching by a human ant. I remember the noise of our guns as all our batteries took their parts in a vast orchestra of drum-fire the tumult of the field-guns merged into thunderous waves. Behind me a fifteen-inch grandmother fired single strokes, and each one was an enormous shock. 
shells were rushing through the air like droves of giant birds with beating wings and with strange wailings the german lines were in eruption their earthworks were being tossed up and fountains of earth sprang up between columns of smoke black columns and white which stood rigid for a few seconds and then sank into the banks of fog flames gushed up red and angry rending those banks of mist with strokes of lightning in their light i saw trees falling branches tossed like twigs black things hurtling through space in the night before the battle when that bombardment had lasted several days and nights the fury was intensified red flames darted hither and thither like little red devils as our trench mortars got to work above the slogging of the guns there were louder earth-shaking noises and volcanoes of earth and fire sprouted as high as the clouds one convulsion of this kind happened above unza hill with a long terrifying roar and a monstrous gush of flame what is that asked someone it must be the mine we charged at la boissoile the biggest that has ever been it was a good guess when later in the battle i stood by the crater of that mine and looked into its gulf i wondered how many germans had been hurled into eternity when the earth had opened the grave was big enough for a battalion of men with horses and wagons below the chalk of the crater's lips often on the way to Beaupont, i stepped off the road to look into that white gulf remembering the moment when i saw the gust of flame that rent the earth about it chapter seven there was the illusion of victory on the first day of the somme battles on the right of the line by fricourt and it was not until a day or two later that certain awful rumors i had heard from wounded men and officers who had attacked on the left up by gomcourt thiepval and serre were confirmed by certain knowledge of tragic disaster on that side of the battle line the illusion of victory with all the price and pain of it came to me when i saw the german rockets rising beyond the villages of mametz and montauban and our barrage fire lifting to a range beyond the first lines of german trenches and our support troops moving forward in masses to captured ground we had broken through by the heroic assault of our english and scottish troops west yorks yorks and lancs lincolns durhams northumberland fusiliers norfolks and berkshires liverpools manchesters gordons and royal scots all those splendid men i had seen marching to their lines we had smashed through the ramparts of the german fortress through that maze of earthworks and tunnels which had appalled me when i saw them on the maps and over which i had gazed from time to time from our front-line trenches when those places seemed impregnable i saw crowds of prisoners coming back under escort fifteen hundred had been counted in the first day and they had the look of a defeated army our lightly wounded men thousands of them were shouting and laughing as they came down behind the lines wearing german caps and helmets from amiens civilians straggled out along the roads as far as they were allowed by military police and waved hands and cheered those boys of ours vive la angleterre cried old men raising their hats old women wept at the sight of those gay wounded and lightly touched glad of escape rejoicing in their luck and in the glory of life which was theirs still and cried out to them with shrill words of praise and exultation nous les avons les salboches ah ils sont foutus ces bandits 
C'est la victoire, grâce-vous, petite soldat anglaise. Victory, the spirit of victory in the hearts of fighting men and of women excited by the sight of those bandaged heads, those bare, brawny arms splashed with blood, those laughing heroes. It looked like victory in those days, as war correspondents we were not so expert in balancing the profit and loss as afterward we became. When I went into Freecourt, on the third day of battle, after the last Germans, who had clung on to its ruins, had been cleared out by the Yorkshires and Lincolns of the 21st Division, that division which had been so humiliated at Luz, and now was wonderful in courage, and when the Manchesters and Gordons of the 30th Division had captured Montauban and repulsed fierce counter-attacks. It looked like victory because of the German dead that lay there in their battered trenches, and the filth and stench of death all over that mangled ground, and the enormous destruction wrought by our guns, and the fury of fire which we were still pouring over the enemy's lines from batteries which had moved forward. I went down flights of steps into German dugouts, astonished by their depth and strength. Our men did not build like this. This German industry was a rebuke to us, yet we had captured their work, and the dead bodies of their laborers lay in those dark caverns, killed by our bombers, who had flung down hand grenades. I drew back from those fat corpses. They looked monstrous, lying there crumpled up amid a foul litter of clothes, stick bombs, old boots, and bottles. Groups of dead lay in ditches, which had once been trenches, flung into chaos by that bombardment I had seen. They had been bayoneted. I remember one man, an elderly fellow, sitting up with his back to a bit of earth, with his hands half raised. He was smiling a little, though he had been stabbed through the belly, and was stone dead. Victory. Some of the German dead were young boys, too young to be killed for old men's crimes and others might have been old or young. One could not tell, because they had no faces, and were just masses of raw flesh and rags and uniforms. Legs and arms lay separate, without any bodies thereabouts. Outside Montauban there was a heap of our own dead, young Gordons and Manchesters of the 30th Division. They had been caught by blasts of machine-gun fire, but our dead seemed scarce in the places where I walked. Victory? Well, we had gained some ground, and many prisoners, and here and there some guns. But as I stood by Montauban, I saw that our line was a sharp salient looped round Mehmet's village, and then dipping sharply toward Freecourt. Oh, God, had we only made another salient after all that monstrous effort? To the left there was a fury at La Boiselle, where a few broken trees stood black on the skyline on a chalky ridge storms of german shrapnel were bursting there and machine-guns were firing in spasms in cantal maison around a chateau which stood high above ruined houses shells were bursting with thunderclaps our shells german gunners in invisible batteries were sweeping our lines with barrage fire it roamed up and down this side of montauban wood just ahead of me and now and then shells smashed among the houses and barns of Freecourt, and over Mamets there was suddenly a hurricane of hate. Our men were working like ants in those muck heaps. A battalion moved up toward Bosselle. From a ridge above Freecourt, where once I had seen a tall crucifix between two trees, which our men called the poodles, a body of men came down, and shrapnel burst among them, and they fell and disappeared in tall grass. 
stretcher-bearers came slowly through Fricourt village with living burdens some of them were german soldiers carrying our wounded and their own walking wounded hobbled slowly with their arms round each other's shoulders germans and english together a boy in a steel hat stopped me and held up a bloody hand a bit of luck he said i'm off after eighteen months of it german prisoners came down with a few english soldiers as their escort i saw distinct groups of them and a shell smashed into one group and scattered it the living ran leaving their dead ambulances driven by daring fellows drove to the far edge of Fricourt, not a healthy place and loaded up with wounded from a dressing station in a tunnel there it was a wonderful picture of war and all its filth and shambles but was it victory i knew then that it was only a breach in the german bastion and that on the left gomcourt way there had been a black tragedy chapter eight on the left where the eighth and tenth corps were directing operations the assault had been delivered by the fourth twenty ninth thirty sixth forty ninth thirty second eighth and fifty sixth divisions the positions in front of them were gomcourt and the Beaumont Hamel on the left side of the river Ancre, and the Thiepval wood on the right side of the Ancre, leading up to Thiepval chateau on the crest of the cliff these were the hardest positions to attack because of the rising ground and the immense strength of the enemy's earthworks and tunnel defenses but our generals were confident that the gunpowder at their disposal was sufficient to smash down that defensive system and make an easy way through for the infantry they were wrong in spite of that tornado of shell-fire which i had seen tearing up the earth many tunnels were still unbroken and out of them came masses of german machine-gunners and riflemen when our infantry rose from their own trenches on that morning of july first our guns had shifted their barrage forward at that moment farther ahead of the infantry than was afterward allowed the men being trained to follow close to the lines of bursting shells trained to expect a number of casualties from their own guns it needs some training in order to secure the general safety gained by keeping the enemy below ground until our bayonets were round his dugouts the germans had been trained too to an act of amazing courage their discipline that immense power of discipline which dominates men in the mass was strong enough to make them obey the order to rush through the barrage of ours that advancing wall of explosion and if they lived through it to face our men in the open with massed machine-gun fire so they did and as english irish scottish and welsh battalions of our assaulting divisions trudged forward over what had been no man's land machine-gun bullets sprayed upon them and they fell like grass to the scythe line after line of men followed them and each line crumpled and only small groups and single figures seeking comradeship hurried forward german machine-gunners were bayoneted as their thumbs were still pressed to their triggers in german front lines trenches at the bottom of thiepfall wood outside beaumont hamel and on the edge of gomcourt park the field-gray men who came out of their dugouts fought fiercely with stick-bombs and rifles and our officers and men in places where they had strength enough clubbed them to death stuck them with bayonets and blew their brains out with revolvers at short range then those english and irish and scottish troops 
grievously weak because of all the dead and wounded behind them, struggled through to the second German line, from which there came a still fiercer rattle of machine-gun and rifle fire. Some of them broke through that line, too, and went ahead in isolated parties across the wild crater land, over chasms and ditches and fallen trees, toward the highest ground, which had been their goal. Nothing was seen of them. They disappeared into clouds of smoke and flame. Gunner observers saw rockets go up in far places, our rockets, showing that outposts had penetrated into the German lines. Runners came back, survivors of many predecessors who had fallen on the way, with scribbled messages from company officers. One came from the Essex and King's Own of the 4th Division, at a place called Pendant Copse, southeast of Serre. For God's sake, send us bombs. It was impossible to send them bombs. No man could get to them through the deep barrage of shell-fire which was between them and our supporting troops. Many tried and died. The Ulster men went forward toward Beaumont Hamel with a grim valor which was reckless of their losses. Beaumont Hamel was a German fortress. Machine-gun fire raked every yard of the Ulster way. Hundreds of the Irish fell. I met hundreds of them wounded, tall, strong, powerful men from the Queen's Island and Belfast factories, and Tyneside Irish and Tyneside Scots. They gave us no chance, said one of them, a sergeant major. They just murdered us. But bunches of them went right into the heart of the German positions, and then found behind them crowds of Germans who had come up out of the tunnels and flung bombs at them. Only a few came back alive in the darkness. Into Thiepfall Wood our men smashed their way through the German trenches, not counting those who fell, and killing any German who stood in their way. Inside that wood of dead trees and charred branches they reformed, astonished at the fewness of their numbers. Germans coming up from the holes in the earth attacked them, and they held firm and took two hundred prisoners. Other Germans came closing in like wolves in packs and to a German officer who said, Surrender, our men shouted, No surrender, and fought in Thiepfall Wood until most were dead, and only a few crawled out to tell that tale. The Londoners of the 56th Division had no luck at all. Theirs was the worst luck, because, by a desperate courage and assault, they did break through the German lines at Gumcourt. Their left was held by the London Rifle Brigade, the Rangers and the Queen Victoria Rifles, the old Vicks, formed their center. Their right was made up by the London Scottish, and behind came the Queen's Westminsters, and the Kensingtons, who were to advance through their comrades to a farther objective. Across a wide no-man's land they suffered from the bursting of heavy crumps, and many fell. But they escaped annihilation by machine-gun fire, and stormed through the upheaved earth into Gomcourt Park killing many Germans and sending back batches of prisoners. They had done what they had been asked to do, and started building up barricades of earth and sandbags, and then found they were in a death trap. There were no troops on their right or left. They had thrust out into a salient, which presently the enemy saw. The German gunners, with deadly skill, boxed it round with shell-fire, so that the Londoners were enclosed by explosive walls and then very slowly and carefully drew a line of bursting shells up and down, up and down, that captured ground, ravaging its earth anew, and smashing the life that crouched there, London life.
I have written elsewhere, in the battles of the Somme, how young officers and small bodies of these linden men held the barricades against German attacks, while others tried to break away through that murderous shell-fire, and how groups of lads, who set out on that adventure to their old lines, were shattered, so that only a few from each group crawled back alive, wounded or unwounded. At the end of the day the Germans acted with chivalry, which I was not allowed to tell at the time. The general of the London Division, Philip Howell, told me that the enemy sent over a message by a low-flying airplane proposing a truce while the stretcher-bearers worked, and offering the service of their own men in that work of mercy. This offer was accepted without reference to GHQ, and German stretcher-bearers helped to carry our wounded to a point where they could be reached. Many, in spite of that, remained lying out in a no-man's land, some for three or four days and nights. I met one man who lay out their wounded with a group of comrades more badly hurt than he was until July 6th. At night he crawled over to the bodies of the dead and took their water bottles and iron rations, and so brought drink and food to his stricken friends. Then at last he made his way through roving shells to our lines, and even then asked to leave the stretcher-bearers who volunteered on a search-party for his pals. Physical courage was very common in the war, said a friend of mine who saw nothing of war. It is proved that physical courage is the commonest quality of mankind, as moral courage is the rarest. But that soldier's courage was spiritual, and there were many like him in the battles of the Somme and in other later battles as tragic as those. End of section 16